Hello, and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about what seems to be a kind of massive craze at the moment, or a big vogue in publishing, which is for people to write sequels or continuations of great classics. And I'm joined by two people who've done more or less just that, by Bonnie McBird, whose second Sherlock Holmes adventure, Unquiet Spirits, Whiskey, Ghosts and Murder, is out just about now, and also by Anthony O'Neill, whose Dr Jekyll and Mr Seek continues the saga of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde in Stevenson's classic. And that, I think, is out imminently. Isn't in it? September, yeah. In September, so I'm gearing up for that. And I'd like to start just by asking you both your take on the very general question of why are we seeing so many of these sequels? We're seeing, in the last few years, new P.G. Woodhouse, new Robert Ludlum, new Agatha Christie even... New, Ian Fleming, you know, it's all coming out and, and these 19th century classics you've addressed yourselves to. Why do you think Bonnie, ladies first? Well, I think one of the reasons is we're kind of longing for what we think of as simpler times or more honourable times or I don't know what, coziness. But, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a fallacy, obviously, because the end of the 19th century was about as tumultuous as it is right now in terms of change, rapid change, and, and people feeling, uh, you know, off balance. But we look at that those times as sort of... Uh, we look at them as, you know, gaslit and sweet and kind of romantic. Uh, and I think it's that. But, you know, I couldn't really speak to why publishers and movie people are also doing yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, you're from a Hollywood background yes. yourself, aren't you? So. Yes, I, I can't really speak to why the trend is coming through them. But I can speak as a writer. I wrote this on spec. I wrote, I sat down to do what exactly what I wanted to do. And that's what I wanted to read. I wrote the book I wanted to read right now. I didn't really think it was commercial because I thought there was a lot out on Sherlock Holmes. But I didn't do it for that reason. I did it because I love it. So it's, you know, it's a different question for the writer than it is for the publisher. Well, my reasons, I think, would be tied up with the publisher's reasons. I think we're living in a brandocracy. I listened to your podcast with Naomi Klein, by the way. <laughs> and I think there's market realities at work. And uh, in my case, I wrote many years ago, I wrote a book that was inspired by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Robert Louis Stevenson. But you wouldn't have heard of it because it sort of uh, quickly went into oblivion. So I thought, well, why not, if I'm interested in these atmospheres and this era and uh, these themes, why not do a direct sequel to uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as opposed to something that's just inspired by it. And my actual, the, the original title for the book was The Fortress of Identity, which is actually thematically more appropriate. But at the last minute, I thought, no, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to really capitalise on this brand. So I've called it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Seek. Yeah. And mm. there's, I mean, there are a number of, you know, I say it's an explosion of things that are happening now, but there are these precedents. I was wondering how far back it goes. I was thinking sort of Widesog SOC maybe as a sort of obvious, you know, Gene Riss's sort of, sequ- well, not quite sequel, but re- reimagining of, you know, the first Mrs. Rochester and Bronte. But, uh, I mean, are there other kind of notable landmarks you guys think of? Well, in I mean, minds it, or themes? it used to be uh, a big deal, wasn't it, when, um, say, they did a sequel to um, Gone with the Wind. They chose an author and uh, she got an awful lot of money. And it was Scarlet, I think it was called. Yeah, I remember. Was, yeah. It, was it the 80s or 90s? Something like that, yes. Well, yeah. uh, the ones you just mentioned are, are relatively recent, but the Sherlock Holmes copies or emulators started while Conan Doyle was still alive. There was a guy <sighs> named August Durleth who was 19 years old and wrote to Conan Doyle and said, I want to do more Sherlock Holmes stories. And Conan Doyle said no. So he wrote Solar Ponds. He created this character that basically was Sherlock Holmes. And he did a bunch of those. Oh, and Durleth finished Lovecraft as well, didn't he? I, mean, I think so, yeah. 
yeah, of fan fiction he, he kind of the original fan fiction in a way and and so he, then eventually that kind of went into the more horror genre and it spun off into all kinds of things and other people have written solar ponds but there have been other emulators of Doyle ever since he was alive really so all through and there's one I particularly love there's a, a detective called Harry Dixon the American Sherlock Holmes this was created by a German and, and popularized by a Frenchman but <laughs> my father's name was Harry Dixon McBird so I love this one. Oh, of course of course I get, can I ask you I mean you've, you've both partly answered this question but what in particular led you to choose these these authors I mean is it kind of like yeah, fan fiction authors this is just yeah, yeah absolutely yes yeah, so in my case I read the book Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde when I was um, seven or eight years old and I was enthralled by it and I asked my mother to actually because I, I borrowed a copy from the school library and I asked my mother to buy me a copy which I've still got and still still very much um, treasure that's why I've actually dedicated the book to her because she walked the streets of Melbourne looking for a copy of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde uh, classics weren't as, as easy to buy in those days as they are now you can walk into any bookstore and buy Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde so but, I thought that dedication had a sort of slightly you know, mysterious air to it. When I imagine walking the streets of Melbourne in a kind of fog. Quite the opposite. Quite a, but the funny thing is, of course, uh, I think in the long run, that's what made me move to Edinburgh many, many years later. Obviously, obviously I'm from Australia and I now live, live in Edinburgh. And I think it was just being so inspired by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, particularly Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that I've ended up where I am now. And for you, just the love of Holmes, was it? Yes, uh, I also fell in love as a kid. I was 10 when I read the first Sherlock Holmes story, and then I read the entire canon and loved it. And I got in trouble in school because my, my parents used to have a big dictionary open in our house, and we were supposed to use the word we learned soon after. So I wrote something in a short story in fourth grade, and they called my mother into the principal's office and said, where did she learn this word? And she started laughing and said, she'll tell you tomorrow. And the next day I brought in Arthur Conan Doyle, and the word was ejaculated. <laughs> well, it could have been cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> no, but of course, obviously it was, you know, he spits it out. I mean, yeah. used that word several times in the, in the canon. Yeah, in the <laughs> Yeah, that was, got me in a bit but, of trouble, but I loved it. But in particular, I mean, as I mentioned, you've got a background in Hollywood. I mean, you're best known as the screenwriter of Tron. It seems kind of weird jump from that, doesn't it? <laughs> Arthur um, Conan Doyle, or do you just roll up your uh, roll up your eyes like a chef and go to work on the next thing as a writer? Um, no, it's actually there is an, an odd connection in a way because the entry point for that was computer science and logic, <laughs> and and the fact that people didn't really understand how that world could spin out or what was actually going on inside a computer, and some of it is very logical and very organized, and some of it is utter chaos, <laughs> and and quite artistic. So that got me very excited, and I'd I'd actually. Take taken some computer programming classes and so forth, so I was inspired, and I did that because I'm, I'm inclined this way. <laughs> so, so, but uh, I was going to say, like Anthony, I, I also moved here. I live in London oh. half the time, and uh, instead of California, oh, and so. I love, I love it here. Just like you, I guess, attracted well, to. It's a the, sign of commitment, you know. These are authors I haven't just found a franchise to extend. They've moved you people around the world, you know. Um, well, well, of course, uh, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is nominally set in London, but as G.K. Chesterton and uh, Ian Rankin have said, it's qu the quintessential Edinburgh book because of the, the, the split between the old town and the new town, the dark side and the light side of uh, human nature. Exactly. And can I ask, you know, obviously these authors that have meant a lot to you both, it's a sort of twinned question, one of which is, you know, isn't it intimidating to step into these very, very large shoes? And the second question, is, which is linked, is how much do you feel yourselves kind of 
duty bound to certain things? I mean, how, how free are you to reinterpret their use of language? How free are you to go out of canon or reboot a character or retcon the character's past for the purposes of your plot? Well, people have felt very free with Holmes, and there's been a huge variety in terms of the emulators. And some of people have created these tapestries of romance or you know, science fiction or all these other things. It's really an author's choice. My personal choice is to emulate as closely as possible. So I actually keep the canon open in front of me. I check vocabulary. I'm really aware of sentence structure, and I'm really trying to emulate the style because I admire the style. And in answer to the first part of that question, yeah, it's hubris, really, because I, I think think the man is a genius but from an artistic standpoint you know it's it's a worthy goal to emulate someone this good his narrative drive his construction and so forth I mean they're really unmatched and um, he's he's often called cinematic even though his work predates cinema because he's so visual he doesn't wax poetic at length about things unlike other 19th century writers unlike Robert Louis Stevenson yes (laughs) (laughs) who did who did yes but but beautifully and he also has a lot of dialogue and, and so forth so it's a style that I find... Um, it is, yeah. It's like ex- a script. Yeah. Yes, in, in a way. And, and I love the characters. Yeah, I think Stevenson has rather a denser style, doesn't he? Yeah, you've yes, you've so lightened him up a bit for that, this. That's, that's, absolutely, you know, yes. Um, you, you, you noticed. <laughs> yes, no, it's a sort of... Because Stevenson grew up reading biblical texts and the Pilgrim's Progress, and he trained as a lawyer, and he was a poet, obviously. So his style is very dense. I think Vladimir Nabokov called him the ultimate prose stylist. So for me to try to attempt to replicate that would be a fool's errand. So I only did as much as I could, give a little bit of a veneer of, as Bonnie was saying, the same sort of vernacular, the same sort of structure, the same lexicon. But to a certain extent, even if I did replicate it exactly, it would still look very forced and self-conscious. And I know that for a fact because I quoted uh, Stevenson verbatim in one paragraph and my editor told me it was very awkwardly worded. <laughs> so there you go. Yes. Well, and there is a, a sense in which both of these writers are quite, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of kind of textual games in any case, isn't there? I mean, you know, there's this, I see you've got an endorsement on yours from Leslie Klinger, who edited that demented collected Sherlock Holmes, which is completely brilliant, but for readers who don't know it, it's a sort of two-volume scholarly edition of all the Holmes canon based on the principle that Holmes and Watson were real people and that the documents really well written by Watson and Tongue-in-cheek, yes. Tongue-in-cheek, exactly. But the <laughs> but, amount yeah. of scholarship on this kind of essential Well, it's, it's is... filled with annotations. And actually, I personally love reading those annotations because that's one of the cool things about Holmes now, reading him now, is that uh, there are sort of octopus arms into all kinds of fascinating Victorian science and social things, uh, uh, social trends and so forth, the, the, what was modern then, the Industrial Revolution and all the, all the inventions. It's all in his original stuff. And so uh, Leslie Klinger's annotations are very rich and fun to read. So I actually did those. I did it. I emulated Leslie Klinger, and annotations to my books are on my website. So oh, in, in the style of Leslie Klinger, who is a friend of mine. I mean, he also spots that, you know, the, you know Holmes's dressing gown changes color all the time, or that his. Yes, Watson's he, wound doesn't right. you know, well, well, moves well, around his body. And so kind of was occasionally sloppy, and he made yeah. mistakes, and he was somewhat inconsistent. And uh, yes, he does point that out. <laughs> <laughs> Finds ways of trying to reconcile it all. I know, but right. but also, you know, you've got this lovely play through your book with the idea of you know the missing testimony and the sort of I, mean, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it sort of ends with somebody 
writing Yes, uh, it's very, very interesting. In it, moment, it's designed yeah. to be ambiguous. Perhaps it wasn't quite so ambiguous in the draft I first submitted, and my publishers were very adamant that it should be as ambiguous as possible. And yet, when people respond to the book, they're very definitive. It's either one way or the other. Yes, I won't go into, into details, but yes, the, the ending is, is supposed to be up in the air. But people have decided one way or the other without any sort of ambiguity at all. Well, I've been Robert Lowman reading saying the great advantage of writing in an ambiguous style is, you know, <laughs> people violently disagree about your work and you don't have to say anything, I paraphrase. But is there a sort of, do you think, a canon of books and writers like these ones where they almost sort of left the unitary thing of being a, you know, a novel that's self-contained and become kind of much more like myths? I mean, you know, the way that they can be re reinvented constantly. I mean, you see Jane Austen going through kind of clueless and, you know, all these different Hollywood movies that reinvent Jane Austen. You know, we've seen Benedict Cumberbatch's Holmes, we've seen Holmes appearing with Jekyll and Hyde in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You know, I mean, they somehow moved almost into the realm of and, comic book characters. Uh, and Russell Crowe was Hyde in the latest uh, Mummy film with uh, Tom Cruise. So, yes, it's weird. I mean, do you think it's something... I mean, it, it does feel like quite a Hollywood sort of thing now that we're moving into a quite a sort of film situation. Again, it's, it's, it's the brandocracy, isn't it? Um, everything's got to be branded, everything's got to be a known commodity, or else uh, you won't get it um, financed, you won't get it published. I think I think these character-driven things are... These these particular characters in both of our books are, are have become mythic, I agree with you, and I think it's because they have some essential quality that we need that we want to be or have or something. So, I mean, Holmes is, you know, obviously his superior intellect, but the fact that he's, you know, he's a very complex character. He is definitely an Achilles heel. He's, you know, he has drug problems. He's probably what we would call bipolar now. He may, he might be Asperger's a bit. He, he has, he has issues. <laughs> and yet he's a, he's a phenomenal performer. He can, you know, go for days and he's, you know, he's a genius. So this, I think that lends itself to a mythic, you know, thing that it, it would be applicable in any age and in any situation. We would all love to be Holmes, but I think even more than that, we would love to be Watson. We would love to be with Holmes, and we'd love to have, have that kind of friendship and be able to offer that kind of support because Watson is um, Watson is every man only as a hero. So I think we just that's want to put on these clothes. We want to wear these. We want to be these guys. And I think that's why they live forever. And so we want, so we want to be Sal Paradise rather than Dean Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think we want to be one of these two guys or maybe a combination of them, you know. And also they had such fun. <laughs> yes, I certainly did. Yeah, so, well, both Sherlock and Jekyll and Hyde have entered the popular lexicon, haven't they? Because it's like uh, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes. And he's a real Jekyll and Hyde character. So, yes, uh, they are. <laughs> Bigger than mere characters in fiction. And um, are films of either of your things on the slate? I wouldn't say on the slate because I've worked in Hollywood for more than 30 years, so it's being discussed. (laughs) Excellent. Well, that's as good as as it gets at this stage. (laughs) Really? No, uh, mine uh, hasn't been submitted yet. My my last book actually is with uh, 20th Century Fox, but uh, that's another story. Ah, Very good. Well, good luck to you both, and thank you very much for coming in. Anthony O'Neill and Bonnie McBird. Thank you. Why wait for tomorrow's papers? The best analysis of the day's news is already on Coffeehouse. To subscribe to the Evening Blend email in order to receive the best of The Spectator each day, just head to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.